fashion. This is all in for the love of the game. This is Love Set Match. Andre Agassi had this goal, you don't have to be better than everyone else in the draw when you go out on the court. Like, you have to be better than someone that's across the net. I think you got to stay active in a sport sense, you know, go out there, do some sports. I think it always makes you feel better, maybe you're more tired in the very moment, but actually the rest of the day feels better. And then I think giving back as well, you know, making other people happy is going to give you a good feeling too. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to this special edition of Tennis Pal Chronicles, the podcast to feed your passion for all things tennis. As you know, Tennis Pal Chronicles is sponsored by Tennis Pal, which is a great app you can download for Android or iPhone and find people to play with. So visit TennisPal.com for more information. And with me is my wonderful co-host, Valerie Garcia. Hi, Valerie. <laughs> I'm good. How are you doing, Philip? My goodness, we have not seen each other for too long. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. But I'm sure you're out there moving and shaking. <laughs> Lots of lessons going on, for sure. Uh, tennis is exploding in Southern California. The courts are full. Even though we have the Delta variant, I feel like tennis is still safe outside and people are uh, socially distant, so all is moving ahead still, even with all of this craziness. Yes, the tennis, the best sport for a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, and since we've talked, so much has happened. Tokyo Olympics, of course, have, have come and gone and had some pretty great tennis there, although it was pretty shocking that Djokovic did not win a medal. I was not that shocked, but I, get, I can see why it's shocking. It, you know, I think to me, like three sets is just such a... And, and the Olympics always brings out crazy results, I think. That's true, yeah. And I think if I understand it correctly, this is the third Olympic Games in a row that Djokovic has not medaled. So it's almost like a kryptonite for him. Something at the Olympics is, is very difficult for him. Yeah. Next Olympics, he'll enter doubles so that he could join Roger in getting some sort of hardware <laughs> well, i kind of think by that time rafa and roger will be gone next olympic he'll win gold you know yeah but they weren't in this one and he didn't win <laughs> well that's what i'm saying it's like it was such an easy shoe in for him i thought you know everybody thought i think everybody was betting on him and then and then he he didn't even win for bronze too so that was kind of shocking yeah. Well, speaking of the Olympics, we have an Olympic tennis player on our podcast today. So exciting. That is so cool. Yeah. Her name is Juliana Olmos, and she is a professional tennis player. She's actually ranked number 343 in the world for singles, but recently, as, a, as recent as May of this year, she hit number 30 in doubles in the world. So really, really exciting times for her. That is amazing. She's 27 years old. She grew up in uh, Fremont, but she was actually born in Austria. Nice. Juliana played for the University of Southern California before going on to the pro circuit, and she's been on. She's been pro for five years now. It's been a, a while, and it's a struggle, isn't it? I mean, to go from college to the pro circuit, I think it's a really tough slog. Yes, but so commendable to those who do that. Yeah. 
And I, it's so much more rewarding for me anyway, probably you too, I think because we both really like the college circuit, to see them succeed after. Yes. And to follow them on tour. Yes, exactly. And Juliana is the oldest of three girls. Tennis has been a common part of their family, so actually her sisters also play as well. It's really cool when they get to play together they have fun uh, there is a nine-year gap and kind of interesting uh, her sisters are actually twins so uh, she's the oldest and then she has two twin sisters yes so good one reason that she was brought to this podcast by Vanya King is that we're going to be celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month here in the United States in September. It actually starts on September 15th. Juliana Olmos is representing Mexico and plays for the Mexican Tennis Federation. Even though she was born in Austria, she came over to the United States and grew up in Fremont. So Northern California girl. More California tennis players. We'll take them. That's right. And I think there's just a lot of great competition here for tennis players, right? Southern California and Florida. So, um, yes, well, we have the weather, you know, for tennis year round. So, yes, the the best weather in the world, I think. It's just so great yes. here. <laughs> <laughs> so, she, I think she was about 16 years old and she decided to play for Mexico. Mexico offered her a lot of uh, benefits for her to play for Mexico, paid for her travel, and you know how hard it is to be a tennis player, especially that young, and to to have uh, expenses covered and and all of that. And I think she's very proud to be Mexican as well. So it really worked out for her. And there's not many players that are coming out of Mexico. Juliana actually became the first Mexican player in the open era to reach a WTA title final at the Monterey Open in Mexico in 2018. And then the next year, she came back in 2019 and became the first Mexican woman ever to win a WTA title. And then she captured doubles in, in 2019 on grass in Nottingham. So what a, what a great, great couple of years she's had. Yes, and it's really super cool. Um, I know we, we met last podcast for um, Asian Heritage, right? And that was really cool. And now... Mexican heritage, Hispanic heritage. <laughs> we, we're now hitting this sector of our podcast. And I have always wanted a, a Mexican tennis player to have some breakthrough and representation. And I really got a lot out of what she was saying. She talking about, you know, how there's, there's just not a lot of Hispanic players, Mexican to be, you know, or, or even just let's say Central American in general, because because there there are other countries that represent well. So it was, it was just really nice to hear from her, and I I felt like really excited about it. Um, like the twelve year old Valerie who was super like, you know, um, into my heritage, just got really excited to be here. Yeah, and I think we need those role models, right? I mean, uh, a, a female Mexican player who's winning and is someone that we can all look to and say, wow, she's really doing it. So really, really exciting to have her as a role model and uh, to feature her here on Tennis Pal Chronicles. So let's listen to the interview and we'll wrap up afterwards. This interview happened over Zoom, so you'll notice a little bit of quality issue there. Sorry about that, but uh, 
We're so grateful to have Juliana Omos. A lot of her friends call her Juju. <laughs> so please welcome Juju to the show. Well, guys, I am so excited to welcome Juliana Olmos to the Tennis Pal Chronicles podcast. Juliana, thank you so much for making time for us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And sorry it's so early, but I'm glad we got to do it. No, not early at all. I trade stocks in the morning, so I'm up super early. So <laughs> thank you for making time so early. Now, we got connected through Vanya King, who we featured on the Asian American Heritage Tribute podcast as well. How do you know Vanya? And first of all, shout out to Vanya and her amazing nonprofit Serve It Up Foundation, right? She's amazing. But how did you guys first meet? And uh, how do you guys know each other? Um, I actually met her not too long ago. I met her, I think, last year in December during preseason. Um, we were both practicing at Carson a lot. And then we kind of met through other players. And then I saw her at a few her last few tournaments this year. And we would just practice together sometimes. And she's really, really nice. I obviously already knew who she was because she was so good. Right. She was someone I looked up to. So and I met her. I already knew who she was. But that was cool for me. And then um, I watched her play her last few events. And then I'm actually doing an exhibition for her charity next month, I think. So. Oh, super cool. Yeah, I'm excited to be a part of that. So. Yeah, well, we'll definitely highly promote that. Uh, Vanya and I are both together on the Diversity and Inclusion Committee for the USCA. So I'm sure she'll tell me all about that. And uh, we're really excited to have you as a part of that tournament. So thank you so much. And you have had an exciting year so far. My goodness. Winning your first WTA 1000 doubles tournament, the Italian Open. Congrats to that. That's huge. Thank you. It was, yeah, it was unreal that week. I just was so excited to be there. I love Brown. Um, it's, it, it was my favorite tournament or one of my favorite terms before I won it. Yeah. Um, but I felt like just really good vibes there. I love the food. I was just really happy to be there. And I think that just reflected on the court. Well, and what's amazing is you guys entered as alternates, right? Uh, so you came in and yet you went all the way. Yeah, it was actually, we were at a, I don't know where we were, but we signed up and we ended up being one out and I didn't know if we would get in or not. So I actually booked my flight home for Friday because I was like, well, the, fir the first rounds end Wednesday. And if we don't get in, I'll just stay in tour Rome for two days and then fly home. And then I had to keep changing my flight. So I had to change it, I think two or three times. Oh my gosh. I ended up changing it to Monday because we made it all the way. I <laughs> don't know if we would make it to Friday. And, and then all of a sudden we were there still there on Sunday. So it was a really surreal week. And I think also going in as alternates, we kind of had like nothing to lose. And right. We were just like, we want to show that we're good enough to, to be in the tournament. And uh, we ended up winning it. So that was exciting. And you beat two really top players in the final. And it was very close too, right? So can you walk us through that journey? Yeah, I remember um, I'd played Mladenovic before. I'd never played Vondrusova. Um, They're both really good. Uh, Marquetta was serving really, really well. I think they played a really clean first set. They didn't make a lot of enforced errors. And then... Uh, I think in the second set, we just kind of were like, let's just get that energy going. And we were up and then we went back down. <laughs> it was like like a lot of momentum shifts. And then we snuck the second set. And then in the third, I was like, let's just be really aggressive and have a lot of good energy. And we just played to win at the end. And I think uh, it went in our favor. And I, I just think we played really well and we have really good chemistry and a lot of confidence and trust in each other. And I think... That, yeah, that was what we won. It was a good time. That's so great. And your partner is? Sharon. I play with Sharon Fitchman. Yeah. From, from Canada. 
That's amazing. And what was it like the moment you won, you know, and the, the couple of moments afterwards, what was going through your brain? How did you feel? Um, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was the Masters 1000 is like the biggest tournament I'd won to date. Right. And um, I like almost started crying. I, I couldn't believe it. It was so surreal. And I think just we'd been through a lot the last few months. Sharon, I've just come back from an injury and we kind of, we didn't struggle the last couple, like previous weeks, but we didn't do as well as we wanted. And I think all the hard work we put in like the two weeks before it felt like it paid off and we were just so happy. I think and it was just, I don't know. We're like on cloud nine. It was, it was so cool. So cool. Love it. Wow. And I also saw some great footage from the Tokyo Olympics. I mean, what a year so far, right? What an honor to be there. That was crazy. Um, I flew out the day after my wedding to the Olympics. Um, it was the coolest experience of my life for sure. I loved living in the village. I think that was the coolest part, just knowing I was living with the greatest athletes in the world. Right. And um, I mean, just the opportunity to make it there. It's so hard in tennis. Yeah. I mean, it's hard in every sport, but I feel like in tennis, it's it's hard for us, especially as a doubles player, because I have to get in with another person. Um, yeah. I didn't know if we would make it. And we made the cut, so that was really exciting. And I think, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it was always my dream to go. And I didn't know if I'd ever actually make it. So I was really excited to be there. That's so great. So hypothetical question for you. There's a lot of talk about Djokovic and how he didn't medal at the Olympics, right? And you were there, so you must have felt the energy and all that stuff. But for you... Gold medal or Grand Slam? What what means the most to you? Oh, shit. <laughs> yes, I had to go there. <laughs> um, I think it's hard because tennis isn't an Olympic sport, so we don't put as much on the gold. But I think the fact that you can only win a gold every four years makes it a little more prestigious because right. you, can win a slam. you have four chances a year to win a slam. And the whole world is watching, too. I mean, the, the popularity of the gold is so much bigger than a slam in some ways. Yeah. I, I think a gold. I mean, how many people can say – I mean, not that many people can say they won a slam, but I think even less people can say they've won a gold medal. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I think, too. Share some of the experiences uh, of the Olympics for you. I mean, you were there representing Mexico. You got to walk in the uh, Olympic parade. And, I mean, what was that like? Oh, yeah. Walking in the opening ceremony was was really cool. You know, beforehand, we're like all in a tunnel and there's all these other countries lined up and everyone's like cheering and doing their chants from their countries. And what I really like about the opening ceremony is each country walks out in their traditional clothing. Yeah. So it's really cool to see just the different clothing and like cultural aspects that every country has. Right. Um, I did miss the fans when we walked into the stadium. Um, but it was still so cool. I like made my way to the front of the line. Um, cause I knew my friends and family would be watching on TV. So I was like, I have to be in the front. So they <laughs> And my grandma, uh, called me earlier that day and she's like, make sure you stand all the way to the left or all the way to the right. So I can find you. Yeah. So I did that. Um, that was really cool. And I think just seeing athletes every day, you know, when once track and field like started their competitions, you would see them running around in the, in the village, you'd see boxers like on the side of the road, just practicing and sparring. I thought that was cool. And just even going in the cafeteria and seeing all these teams and small little countries there and just knowing like, these are the best of the best. It was just, it's, it was really surreal. Yeah. And I think pre-Olympics, everybody was talking about how COVID was like really going to put a dampener on it. And obviously without the audience it's it was tough but 
when the Olympics hit, it's the Olympics, right? I mean, everyone was so excited. What was the feeling in the village? What was the feeling with the athletes? Um, I think everyone was just happy to be there. I think, you know, you don't notice the fans aren't there until you go to your competition. But I think if you're living in the village, it seems just like a normal Olympics, except for there's like plastic bearings between every person in the cafeteria. Um, but everyone's walking around, you know, wearing their uniforms and their, their track suits and everything and everything that has their country on it. And I think that was just so cool. And, um, there were like the Tokyo rings in the village and everyone would go take pictures there every day. I went there every day <laughs> and you know, there was a street with every flag and it was just cool. I went to the shops and in the village, it was pretty normal. I think, um, it didn't seem like COVID besides masks and that kind of stuff, but, uh, I think you felt it most when, when you were in competition, but in the village, it was, it was still really fun. Sure. You had just mentioned your marriage. So congratulations. Another super big highlight. That was actually last, last year. No, this year. No, last month. Last month. Wow. So again, a huge, huge year for you. As much as you want to share, how does marriage impact the life of a tennis pro? Um, I don't think it impacts <laughs> Um, I think, I don't know. For me, I feel like it's the same. Everything's the same as like before we were married. So I think that's really good. Nothing's really changed. So that's nice. Um, but my husband's always been really supportive of my tennis. And he's always like, if you need to go play more tournaments or you need to go somewhere, like go do it. Um, he doesn't want to hold me back in any way at all. And then when he gets time off of work, he'll come and travel with me. Um, but it, it's been pretty easy because I know he always supports my travel or my tournaments. So, I, I mean, I do feel bad sometimes when I'm gone for a while, but he's always supportive. So that always, that always, uh, takes a lot of stress off and lets me play and it's a lot easier. So. Sure. Wow. Well, back to your college and pro career. I know you are a USC player and, uh, I'm sure that was an amazing team experience. Uh, but a lot of college players don't go on to go pro, even though they're incredible players and the college level is very high. It's, it's a shame that there isn't much more interest in college tennis. But how do you talk about um, mindset shift from choosing tennis as a career versus like business or coding or something, you know, and then making that decision from USC to just go pro? Um, I always, one of my goals when I was little to always, was to always go pro and, and play, play professional. I think maybe some people just want to go to college or get a scholarship and then end there. Um, but I knew I always wanted to continue my tennis. So I think that also kept me really motivated in college because I it was, I was using it as like a stepping stone to, to the next level. And I think college helps a lot because you play so many matches, you play so many different types of people, um, your game develops a lot. I think also maturity wise you develop and um, just like straight, you know, you're doing like four years of fitness there. So like you get in better shape, build, put on muscle. And I think mentally and physically you're, you're, you're stronger and also a little bit more prepared. Um, I don't know if I would have made it on the pro tour if I went, if I was 18, you know, I didn't realize how hard it was until um, I started playing but I think everything has to do with your mindset. As long as you, you know, you're in the right mindset and you have goals and you, you know what you're working towards. Um, I think that makes it easier. It's definitely still hard a lot of the time on the road. This is my fifth year now on tour and 
I still have little ups and downs, but I have a lot more experience now, so I know how to navigate myself a little bit better. Well, I do hear that on the pro tour can be very lonely traveling by yourself, dealing with losses. I mean, unless you're at the very highest level, right? So who are some of your closest friends on tour and how do you deal with the the differences between, you know, traveling with the team and doing it yourself? Um, I think I got really lucky because I have a good group of girls that I can travel with. And a lot of that, or two of them are my team, previous teammates at USC. So my closest friends on tour would be Desiree Kravchek, Sabrina Santa Maria, and Caitlin Christian. Um, We all also play doubles, but when we played singles, we would travel together. And now doubles, we travel together a lot. And then uh, this off season, we actually all were training together. So it was a lot of fun for me to this off season because I was training really, really hard, but I was with my best friend. So it made it a lot more enjoyable and um, it does get really lonely. And even when you are traveling with your friends, it gets hard because I had like a, a small period where I was losing and I was really burnt out and I didn't really want to hang out with anybody. Um, but I think we all know, you know, how the other person reacts or if someone needs space or if someone needs a little bit more like not attention, but like, you know, you need to be a little bit more supportive. So I think we've done a really good job of taking care of each other and balancing it all out. And um, I've actually been home the last three weeks and no one's really texted me because they know when I'm not on the road, I don't want to know anything about tennis. (laughs) So everyone's giving me space, Um, but I'll see everyone this weekend. So we're all really excited. And do you watch tennis while you're at home or just you're totally take a break? I totally, I, I used to, maybe I'll watch like, some singles if it happens to be on TV, but when I'm home, I don't look at scores. I try to go on like social media as little as possible because I don't want to know who's winning. I'm obviously happy for my friends that they win. I want them to win, but I tell them like, Hey, I'm not going to follow your scores. Like I just need to like completely (laughs) shut off from tennis. So I, because when I'm home, I want to be home. I don't want to worry about my job. And then when I'm at, you know, when I'm on the road, I'll worry about it then. But um, well, what are some of the perks of being a professional tennis player? Um, probably the coolest perk is that we get to travel and the hardest perk is that we have to travel. Um, we're on the road or I'm on the road between 32 and 35 weeks a year. Um, I definitely love the travel. I love being in a country every week, new cities, um, trying new foods, seeing the culture. I, it's a, it's a really cool way to see the world. Um, but at the same time, sometimes we don't always get to enjoy the cities we're in just because, it's hotel and then practice. Um, and then now with the, uh, with COVID, we were in bubbles for a really long time. So it was, we couldn't do anything at all. So that was really hard too. That took a toll on me mentally at one point, just because you can't do anything. And I feel like you can't escape. And we didn't realize how, how, how nice it was just to go get dinner one day, you know, and it's such a small thing, but just to mentally, you know, get a, get away from the tennis or, get away from tennis players um, was nice, but things are starting to open up, getting better. And uh, I'm really excited for us open. I'll be able to leave the hotel. So I'm like (laughs) writing down restaurants I can go to. Um, My sisters will come with me. So we're really excited. You you have twin sisters. Yeah, I have twin sisters. They're younger. So they'll come with me. But yeah, I think traveling is, is the coolest thing. That's great. And you have a unique experience growing up in the U.S., and playing in the U.S. tennis system, but also playing for the Mexican Tennis Federation. So I, I would love to hear your thoughts and uh, if you could highlight some of the differences between the tennis programs, what's happening in the U.S. versus what you see happening in Mexico. Um, yeah, so I, my parents moved here when I was two. And so I grew up in the USTA, playing USTA tournaments. 
And then when I was 16, I play, I switched over to Mexico after my last 16s hard courts. Right. Um, I think there's just more, there's a little bit more depth here in the U.S. There's a lot more tournaments. And I think what was good is back then you had to play sectionals tournaments or tournaments in your section to be um, like spot or endorsed to play the nationals. So I think it forced you to play in your age group and win, and then you could play the national tournaments as well. And um, in Mexico, we, ha- we have nationals, but there's not like as many, there's not as many tournaments and there's not like as many uh, different levels like in the USTA. And I think that made it also more competitive in the States, just having, I think for me, I was really competitive and I loved playing. So I think it was good that I had to win in my section or to like earn my spot in the, like in the national tournaments. And um, there was just more um, competition here in the States than in Mexico. And I think it was, it was just better for my tennis to grow here than there. Sure. Unfortunately. Can you, can you give us an idea of the state of tennis in Mexico through the, through the Federation? I mean, do you see it in a growth stage or? Um. It's tough. I feel like the Federation could do better in its tournaments as well as supporting its players. I think sometimes they focus a little bit too much on making money and not, you know, putting it back into the tennis or the junior tennis um, or in, in their professionals as well. Which is maybe true in America as well. Uh, it might be true in America, yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't go through the USTA after 16, so I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, I think I think the USTA is a little bit more supportive than than the tennis the, the Federation Mexico. Um, but I think it's tough to, you know, I think in overall tennis is a rich person sport, and um, in Mexico, you know, if you have a lot of money, you can get lessons. You have access to clubs. There aren't really any public courts in Mexico. In the states, there are more. Um, so I think it, it's just harder for for tennis to grow there because it is a uh, a wealthier sport. So I think, I think that adds to it, but uh, hopefully we can get tennis to grow in Mexico. We have, we have a few good players. So I hope that inspires other people to play. That's great. Yeah. And that's what we're here to do actually is to inspire people to play tennis uh, on the podcast. And in September, we'll be celebrating the Hispanic heritage month here in the U S and I guess, first of all, do you identify yourself as Hispanic or what term do you feel more comfortable with? Um, I do identify as Hispanic. Um, I just say I'm Mexican, I guess. Um, <laughs> I'm always lost at all the terms, you know. So, <laughs> guys, like funny during COVID, I, I looked up the difference between Hispanic and Latina. <laughs> so I, I actually fall under both. But yes, I do identify as Hispanic. Okay, great. So I feel comfortable then. So, and it's impossible to talk about heritage without including your parents. So can you tell us a little bit about your parents and their journey, you know, to America and and tennis? Yeah. So my dad is from Mazatlan, Mexico, and my mom is from Austria, from Salzburg. And my, my mom's mom, so my grandma, she's originally from Mexico and she ended up moving to Austria um, because she met her husband there. And then my mom was born and grew up there. And my grandma sent my mom to Mexico just to visit her family and, you know, learn about the culture. And when she was on that trip, she met my dad and then they started dating and blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah. (laughs) uh, So, so I was, I was actually born in Austria. So cool. Three weeks after I was born, my parents moved to Mexico and they were living there. And then 
when I was two, they decided to go to, to the U.S. and just live abroad for a year and just because my they had family there. And then um, I'm not really sure what it was, but uh, they changed their mind and decided to just stay. And I think there were just more opportunities for them and they wanted their kids to have more opportunities. And I think it was just better um, where they were at in the States than back in Mexico. And so they just decided to stay. And then, um, yeah, I grew up here my whole life. And then uh, my sisters were born and I go back. I try and go to Austria about once a year to visit my grandma or my mom's entire side of the family when I'm in Europe. And then when I'm in Mexico, I try to visit my grandparents as well, or they come meet me at tournament. Yeah. So you are incredibly international. Yes. <laughs> a little bit everywhere. <laughs> well, how, how has tennis been changing for someone who identifies with Mexico or as, as Hispanic? I mean, what were some of your experiences you remember, you know, rising up through the ranks in, in the U S I just remember when I was younger, there were always a lot of people to look up to in, in U S tennis, you know, obviously I was like Serena Venus and Serena, you know, I don't remember having any Mexican tennis players to look up to when I was so young and I realized there was no one playing. And so my parents would tell me, I remember about, there was a Mexican golfer, Lorena Ochoa, and she was one in the world. And it was so big because we had a Mexican who was one in the world and something and we didn't have anyone in tennis. And so I had to look at a different sport. And, um, when I switched, I remember I just wanted, I obviously wanted to bring more like awareness and attention to Mexico and, and kind of show the girls that are coming behind me that we are good enough to play at this level. And not only can we play at this level, we can win at the professional level. And we have a few more professionals, um, who are playing and who are actually playing before me. And I think they're all starting to do a little bit better now, but I hope that we can inspire uh, the girls coming behind us. And I always think it's really important just, you know, if you can see someone like in that position, you know, you can do it well or someone who kind of leads the way. And I'm not saying I'm leading the way, but hopefully we can inspire other girls and, and show them that, you know, they can play and we can be at this level. Yeah. Wow. That's great. And I mean, your stats are pretty impressive. I, if I read correctly, you're the first Mexican player in the open era to reach a WTA final. Is that right? Yes, and to win a WTA. And and to win in doubles, which is amazing. And I read this other uh, title for you that I thought was amazing. You were named uh, among the 100 most powerful women in Mexico, according to Forbes magazine. I mean, what does that even mean? I don't know, but it was <laughs> so cool. Um, I remember I was... This was last year uh, during COVID. I remember I just went on Instagram one day and I was tagged in a photo and it said I was in the Forbes 100 list. And I was like, this is a joke. And then I got <laughs> tagged. In so I got tagged in two more. And then, then all of a sudden it was like three photos. And I was like, what is this? And I was like, oh my God, is this real? And then all of a sudden people started congratulating me, but I hadn't received anything and no one told me. So I was like, is this really real? And so then um, I went on Google and I like Googled Forbes Top 100 <laughs> in Mexico and I was like scrolling and I found my name and I was like, wow, this is so cool. And then all of a sudden, like I was getting tagged in more photos and more everything. And then, yeah, I was like, well, this is so cool. I was so like, so humbled and like so honored. I, I never would have put myself on that list. And um, when I just saw all the powerful women that were on it and that I'm there on the same list as them and next to their name, I was just like blown away. I was, yeah, I was really humbled. 
And that, that really says something about the power of sports, right? I mean, uh, I work with uh, Rosie Casals at her foundation, Love and Love Tennis Foundation, and she was one of the original nine who really opened the door for women to be able to even earn equal pay in tennis. And, you know, when I think of Serena or Naomi Osaka, these people, they all really owe it to Billie Jean King and Rosie and the original nine that that all of this could happen. And it's just so cool that in tennis, girls have a chance to become powerful women. Yeah, they do. And uh, I think it's always so important to look back at those who came before us, because they did pave the way for us. And they inspired a lot of us. And I, it was funny is when I was younger, I, I went to a lot of like ter- professional tournaments and I would see all the top pros and some of them are retired now and some of them are still on tour. And, and when I see them, it's, it's so cool to me because a lot of them inspired me and, and are the reason that I wanted to play tennis and that I wanted to play professionally. And, and I feel like I, I owe them in a way. Um, but I think the people who come before us are always so important. And I think, it's, it's good to look back and thank them, you know, because without the original line, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even want to know where women's tennis would be. But, uh, <laughs> or women in general, right? Because they not only opened up tennis, but they opened up all of equality. So it was pretty. Exactly. It was uh, pretty amazing. And they amazing. still fight for it today. So yes. yeah. I love that. Yeah, so great. There's a raging debate about uh, whether the USTA or tennis federations can raise up champions or if it's really private coaches and communities that raise up champions. And what's your take on that? Because, you know, the USTA spends a ton of money on on so many different things. It's really hard to see champions coming out of the national program. What's your take on it? Um. I think it's, I think you were coached by your father, right? I was coached by my father until I was 13. And then I started training at a tennis academy that was about 10 minutes from my house. Um, I think it's really hard because like I said earlier, tennis is more of a wealthier sport and you do have to have private lessons. Um, I was really lucky that I had them. Um, I had a scholarship at the academy that I was at. We, we couldn't really, to be honest, we couldn't, my parents couldn't afford it. And, uh, the academy was really nice. They gave us a scholarship and I was able to get free lessons. And so I think that definitely helped me. I think it's a bit of a blend though. I think if you have a player who's hungry enough and motivated enough, they, they will take the opportunities they have or whatever coaching they can get and make the best of it and kind of just make their way themselves somehow. And I think I say that because that was something that I had to do. Um, I have, I haven't really had a coach full time, and, uh, but whenever I get coaching tips from anyone, you know, I, I take whatever I can get. So I think if you have a, a kid who's hungry enough and, and passionate about enough about their sport and getting better, they can make it. It definitely makes it easier if you have, you know, a traveling coach or someone who's taking you to all the top tournaments and, you know, traveling gets expensive. So I think if you're, if you have that, you can make it, but it's, it's definitely really hard. Tennis isn't an easy sport. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, uh, I feel like for me, tennis has really changed my life, my fitness, you know, built a community of friends that I get to hang out with. What are the, some of the reasons that you play tennis? Why do you love tennis? Um, I play really just cause I love tennis. I, it's really fun most of the time. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just really enjoy playing it. I, 
I'm really competitive. So I, like, I always love to win. And like, whenever we're practicing, if we play games, I'm always like, we have to keep score. Like I, I want to, like, I'm always, I'm really competitive. Um, I don't know if my friends like that, but I think it, it adds, you know, to the practice and it makes everyone better. Um, but I just really enjoy playing it. It just makes me really happy. It's a really fun outlet. Um, there's definitely times when I, I hate tennis. Like two weeks ago, I was like, I don't want to play for two weeks. I needed to, to rest. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really enjoyable. I love that. I can also, I can play with my friends, even if they're not at my level, you know, we can play tennis. I play with my husband on the weekends. He loves to play. Um, I play with my sisters who also play. So I think it's also fun because it brings people together. I love when sport brings people together. Even if you're at different levels, it's fun. It's something to do. It keeps you healthy. It keeps you active. And I think, yeah, it's just a really great sport to play and you can always play at any age. So yeah. And in America, we do have those free courts and there are so many great programs where kids can come out to play. I, I actually teach uh, in Azusa, which was set up by the USTA, and it's a 90% free lunch community. So we're trying to get as many of those kids on the court to play because a lot of them uh, only think of soccer, right? They only think of football. And uh, we want to show them that tennis is amazing. Thank, Thanks to Rafa. <laughs> they have a hero, you know, and you now. So i I'll definitely be telling all the kids about you. What would you tell, uh, you know, Hispanic families in Azusa, what would you tell them about tennis and, and parents about their kids? Because, you know, actually a lot of, uh, especially boys, they don't think of tennis as a kind of a manly sport. It's kind of an interesting perception they have. Yeah, it's different. I think it's also because of the country we're in, nothing wrong with the U.S., but um, like the biggest sport here is, American football and basketball. So that's just what they grow up seeing. Whereas in other countries, you see a lot of tennis, you see a lot of soccer. Um, Those two sports are kind of like not as, are a little bit lower on the ladder, I guess. So I think it's, it's tough because you grow up here and, and soccer is a really big Hispanic sport. And I think it's the biggest sport in the world, I think. Um, But I think for parents who want to play tennis, I mean, Tennis just opens so many doors, so many opportunities. You meet so many people. Um, they have scholarships in colleges. I think in soccer, it's a little bit, or other sports, it's harder because there's so many people and they have to then divide the scholarships. Um, tennis is definitely hard because it's a bit of an individual sport and your kid has to play a lot, but they're going to learn so much if, if you're dedicated and you work hard. You're going to learn so much more in sport that you can use later in life. And it just will help you develop as a person. And I don't know. Tennis is good. Tennis is <laughs> it's a great sport. Yay. I'm with you on that. Well, Gigi, and, you this can is- play, and you can play your whole life. You can play your whole life. I, I, all right. On the court that I play with, there are still 80 and 90 year old players that come out and play. So it's just amazing. You know, I, I coach at a hotel called the Langham Huntington in Pasadena. And sometimes we have these guests that fly in from all over the world. They're still playing in their 80s. So it's just so fun. Yeah. I want so, to be an 80 year old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully my body will still hold up. Right. I mean, yeah. that's, the, that's the big question. So of course, you've won this uh, title, but could you share with us, we'll end on this, you know, some of your greatest moments playing tennis or being on tour or even at the college level, what, what were some of the greatest tennis moments you've experienced? Two of the greatest ones were last year, and one of them was 
when I won Acapulco because I was the first Mexican to win there, to win any title, or first woman, I think, to win a title there, or actually any title. And that was really cool for me because the year before I'd lost in the finals. So to come back and like revenge win, win, yeah, <laughs> win and, and to win at home and the, the stadium was full was so cool. And then as well, last year, um, we, we were in Chile and we played fed cup, which is not the Billie Jean King cup. And we, we won and, and we made it into the world group for the first time in 29 years. And we didn't have a full team that year. So I wasn't, I wasn't even sure if we would stay in our own group and we actually ended up moving up. So that was really cool. And I think it was, I think the, the wins that are a little bit more special are the ones when it's not only about me, it's like also about Mexico and, and the country. And I know that I'm not the only one winning, like Mexico is also winning and the girls coming behind me are winning. And um, I think that's why in college as well, I had the biggest wins were like when the team won, it wasn't necessarily me as just winning my singles match, but like when our team won and those two wins were the first one we beat Cal and I actually clinched the match, but we beat Cal. We, we moved up to number one after that win. And then we beat UCLA for the Pac-12 title. Wow. Four, three as well. So those were, those were two other of like my, my most special memories. Well, especially if it's USC beating UCLA. It's, not, it's always a good memory. <laughs> always a good memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a pleasure it is to speak to you today. And I mean, congratulations on everything, especially your marriage. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's got to be first, but you know, an incredible career as well. And so, so much ahead, which is super exciting. So thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate you being here. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. It was nice meeting you and I'm sure I'll see you in the future. I'm sure we will. I, I look forward to seeing you and cheering you on. And now I'm going to be watching all your YouTube highlights and cheering for you. So very excited about that as well. Thank you so much. All right. We'll talk to you soon. See you. Bye. Wow, Philip, what an amazing interview. I feel, I feel really good hearing everything about her and I can't wait to hopefully catch her at like Indian Wells and watch some of her matches if she makes it in that draw it's so cool she's so cool that was a great great interview too on your part oh thank you so much one of the best things about doing this podcast right is you get to really get involved in these players who maybe you wouldn't have known previously and for me I feel like really connected to Juju now and I'm super excited to you know I follow her on Instagram and and now watch all of her videos and every time I see her play I'm gonna get super excited because I feel like she's my friend you know <laughs> so yes very cool and I think that's what tennis should be right it's really rooting for your friends and and seeing them uh, do really well. And uh, what a sweetheart she is. She just really came across to me as very sweet, very uh, genuine, but also very competitive, right? She loves to win. Yes. And uh, and how cool, you know, to be the first Mexican to win a WTA title and that big doubles win at a Masters 1000 event. Yeah. I that, think that's a I big win. That's really it is cool. huge. Huge, huge, yeah. And I think she's got a lot more in her, so we're very excited to see what, what can happen in the future. And just to even have a career playing tennis as a pro, how great is that, you know? Yes. I'm I'm super, super happy that you were able to make the connection and talk to her. I learned so much. I feel inspired. I feel really proud of her. Um, 
and happy that she's she's there for the young Mexican women. And I'm I can't wait to follow her. Now I'm like I gotta look go look up her Instagram. And I again I just really want to go watch her at at the tournaments um, that are local. And it's yeah she she was such a bright energy, really yes. cool, really nice. Yeah, really nice. And I'm I'm really excited to kind of hold her up in front of a lot of the players that I'm working with as a coach, but also playing with and just start spreading the word, you know, just really creating the fan base and letting people know that there is a Mexican player who's doing incredibly well, because I think they'll really, you know, relate, they'll really feel like here in Southern California, we're over 50%. Hispanic now. So how great to get more people involved in tennis if they feel like they can identify with a hero like Juliana. Yes. (laughs) You got any shout outs? (laughs) Yeah, big shout outs to Vanya King. Thank you so much, Vanya, for bringing Juju to our attention. Really appreciate connecting us. That was super nice. And also to the USTA Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Uh, My friends on the committee were all working together to really raise awareness and create diversity and inclusion in the sport of tennis. So thank you to all my friends on that committee as well. And thanks to you, Valerie. It's so great to be together again and be able to talk about tennis because it is our passion. And tennis has been kind of weird lately, right? I mean, as we look to the U.S. Open, which is just weeks away, uh, I oh, I just saw the Serena announcement today that she's not going to participate. And Venus. Yeah, so both Williams sisters um, not going to be at the U.S. Open. Roger and Rafa not going to be at the U.S. Open. It really feels like a big tidal wave shift in tennis for me. Totally. Did you see? I'm sure you did because you follow way more tennis than I do um, on social media that it's been 24 years since there was a Grand Slam without Roger, Rafa, or Serena. Wow. Wow, 24 years. That's that's a lifetime, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just incredible. I mean, that's that's probably how old uh Juliana is. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, she She's... like maybe barely held a tennis racket the last time that happened. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. And yet, what an impact these incredible champions have had on the game. And I'm very excited about the movie that's coming out, uh King Richard. Uh, talking about Serena's father, Serena and Venus's father uh, that's coming out. I actually contacted Warner Brothers and uh, they said that they would get back to me about trying to do an interview. So I'm really hoping I can interview someone. I don't know if I'll get Will Smith, but (laughs) it would be amazing to get anyone on the podcast from that movie. And I just think that's going to help the game of tennis so much because, you know, it's so timely, right, to have this african-american champion to stand up king richard and you know obviously it's controversial but he really helped serena and venus become who they are and it's a pretty amazing story i can't wait to see it It, it's it is such a unique story and there is something very special about him and that that whole situation the family the way everything happened um it's just like magical yeah and i don't really even know so i'm excited to learn and hopefully it's it's uh not too fictional you know (laughs) yeah right i mean i don't know much but i remember back in the day when they first like broke out on the scene 
I had heard, and this is something that like always stuck with me, that like he was watching tennis with Orisine, their mother, and he saw, I can't remember the player, maybe it was, you know, who it was in the 80s probably. And he was like, we're going to have girls, we're going to have children, and I'm going to teach them tennis, and they're going to be the best. And they, he, they like specifically had them yeah. for that purpose. I heard that same story. The The additive that I heard was he saw that she won more than he was going to make in a year in one tournament. And he was just shocked uh, at the prize money available. And that was part of the motivation as well. Okay. Yeah, I, did, you know, I didn't hear that the- part, but... Definitely. Either way, I mean, it's all amazing that he went to like library and read books, never played tennis. Yeah. It's going to be a cool movie. Yeah. I mean, honestly, as we talked about Vanya King, a lot of similarities there too, because Vanya's father was basically an immigrant father, you know, had a really heavy accent and tried to find all the best coaches in Southern California for his kids. And I think, uh, you know, there's probably a whole lot of stories out there like that. So, how cool that uh, this story gets lifted up to the big screen and uh, hopefully really raises the interest of tennis in our society. I, I'm very excited about that. Yes, yes. The well, great we really want- Venus and Serena Williams. Yes, your favorite. Yes. I mean, they, they definitely love, love, love my Serena. But I, I saw a meme on Instagram the other day that was like, uh, it showed a picture of like a really, really long, long text. And it was like, name a tennis player you defend like this. And like my first thought was Maria Sharapova. Like, <laughs> I think she'll always have my number one spot in my heart. <laughs> but active players, yeah, Serena's, yeah, Serena's gosh, my gal. I, I, miss, I miss Maria too. And uh, yeah, again, it's just that feeling of, you know, uh, changing of the guard and end of an era in a way. And Philip, I know we're trying to wrap this up, but I haven't talked to you in a long time. And it's just strange. Like, I don't know if you listen to the tennis podcast, uh, but they're like having all these talks about like Roger and is at the end and pretty much everyone I'm listening to talk about it kind of agrees that there's not really a way um, probably a feasible way to see him coming back competitively, maybe an exhibition or trying to give it a go next year, but maybe ultimately deciding that the tennis tour isn't as fun when, you, when you're not competitive in slams and things like that. Um, but it, it's just crazy how, like, we haven't talked since his latest knee surgery and his withdrawal from U- the U.S. Open and everything. And Right. Gosh, for us, like... I mean, not is it just the end of an era for tennis itself, but like our idol, our man, he's <laughs> the the human element, uh, element, <laughs> the human element of father time, you know, is is just like sitting, lurking around the corner, ready to take our man away from us. Yeah. It's, and honestly, I just feel like that's going to make Roger even more endearing, you know, that yeah. people are just going to see the king kind of starting to fade. And I think that just is 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 going to open people's heart up to him even more so if that's even possible, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it is very, very sad. He's not going to be at the Labor Cup. I know lots of my friends uh, had already 
purchase tickets, expecting him to be there. He is going to be there. But he's just not going to play is what I've heard. Yeah. And definitely not at the U.S. Open. But it, he has been kind of busy. I actually saw this really cool um, mention about how Roger's shoe company, On Running, uh, mm-hmm. The shoe company is actually going to go public, launching an IPO. So I'm super excited to buy stock oh, in man. Roger's company. I know it. You are just waiting, <laughs> counting down the days. How how cool is that? I mean, they haven't announced a public offering date or anything, but just the fact that they're going to do it is super cool. And, you know, it just makes me feel like, oh, Roger's really looking out for the future. And, and that's what I wish for him, too. It's not so much that he'll compete again, not that he'll play a, a slam or even win a slam again. I just want him to walk normally through the rest of his life, you know? Yeah. I want him to be super healthy. I want him to just enjoy the rest of his life because... He has nothing to prove anymore. You know, he's he's done it all. He's he's been such an amazing role model in on the court and off the court. And I just feel like uh, he deserves to be healthy and be injury free for the rest of his life, if at all possible. And that's it's not it's not possible for a lot of tennis players. Yeah. Then he could go skiing again. I'm sure that's on his list of things to do. <laughs> Definitely hiking in the Alps. That's for sure. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and it would be so great to see him do exhibitions. And, you know, I mean, his exhibitions are going to sell out bigger than any slam, you know? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. He's going to have his exhibitions at Arthur Ashe Stadium. (laughs) Yeah, so I think lots of people are going to follow him. And then the question for all of us who love tennis is, you know, who are you going to follow next? Um, and, And that's a tough question. There's a lot of people knocking at the door, but I don't... For for me, it's it's just a very tough uh, answer to give. Yeah, and uh, Nadal as well with his foot, right? Right. It's just uh, it's just a very interesting time. Definitely, like you said, we've said changing of the guards. I don't know, probably fifty times in the last few years, but <laughs> like at the, at this age, at this stage, it just seems like this is. Uh, you know, Rafa might have a good one or two seasons. He might be able to push out some decent results. But, you know, things are definitely shifting. And then what does that mean, too, for, for Djokovic? Does he just dominate everyone, or is this where they, like, make their move? And we start seeing that change as well. I just, God, I love tennis so much. I cannot wait to see how it all unfolds. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I do think, uh, I mean, the stats, if it was purely numbers, if it's based on pure numbers, obviously Djokovic would win because he has a better head-to-head record against both Rafa and Roger now, uh, has won more Masters, is more consistent, has, has more weeks at number one. So all of the stats point to Djokovic. And, and yeah. he had to do it all during their era. Yep. Like they had time to get to rack up stuff before he was himself or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, he's had to do it through their entire prime. And some after their prime. <laughs> yeah, correct. After their prime as well. But like he had to really wrangle it away from them. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's just like really impressive. I mean, prime Federer's, is 2016 and I think Djokovic was still a kid and was being beaten down during that time you know (laughs) but the fact that he was able to rise up and I think especially against Rafa is super impressive yeah 
Because I think they're only one year apart, right? Djokovic's 34 and Rafa's 35, I think, something like that. Yeah, they're pretty close in age. Yeah, and so that, Andy Murray. that's pretty impressive. And I think it's all the more impressive that, you know, Fed is six years older and thousands of matches more, right, in those six yeah. years. And that his body can hold up and he just has the talent to be able to even compete at that level. But whether his body will let him do it in the future is another question. Yeah, because you know if his knee wasn't messed up at Wimbledon, I mean, his game still holds up. Yeah. He still has that ability to just bring that, bring the heat. Yeah, and just so beautiful the way he plays. Every time I videotape myself, uh, I watch and I just <laughs> gasp. And I say, how come it doesn't look like what it looks like in my head? It doesn't look like Federer. <laughs> I think I look like Federer. And then I see myself on video and I'm like, oh, my God, that's so embarrassing. I think everyone probably has the same thought. <laughs> Including on the tour. <laughs> Well, and the biggest shout out for us goes to Tennis Pal, uh, our sponsor. And thank you so much, Tennis Pal, for sponsoring this podcast. Please go visit their website, tennispal.com. Download the app and find someone to play with. Find a coach and get great tennis news at tennispal.com. It's available for Android and iPhone. And we sure love being a part of the Tennis Pal family. It's the best. If you like it tennis is. at all, you have to have that app. <laughs> well, Valerie, thank you for letting me be a part of your family. It's just so great to hear your voice, and I just need to spend more time with you. Every time I, I talk to you, I feel like, oh, this, I love this girl. Why am, why am I not spending every day with her? Well, I know I'm going to see you soon now. Yes, I sure hope so. Looking because all I had to do was say, Philip, please come let me massage you. <laughs> and there's there's no way that we're we're not gonna meet up now that's right we'll, we'll make guys, it happen <laughs> if you guys are in southern california and you need one of the best masseuse ever that would be valerie garcia so <laughs> definitely kind, reach sir. out to her because she <laughs> is phenomenal total total recovery master for me as a tennis player so really appreciate that well i'm excited to get my hands on you boy <laughs> All right, we'll talk soon, Valerie. Thank you so much. Have a good night. And may all your serves be, be aces. aces. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station.